This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today, I'm excited to touch on a topic that we visited a while back on the Loopcast, um, but recently there's been a lot going on that I feel like general mainstream media hasn't covered it as much. So we're going to look at Nigeria and the issue of Boko Haram, and I'm very happy to have Hilary Matfess on the show. So thank you so much for coming on the show, first of all. No, thank you guys for having me. It's great to be invited. And just for our listeners' sake, Hillary is a master's degree candidate at John Hopkins <clears throat> University School for Advanced and International Studies. And there she works on issues of governance, security, and development in sub-Sahara Africa. So um, Hillary is a perfect person to talk about this. She's had some great works published on the topic. So I'm very excited to continue this talk with her. Hillary, why don't we been, begin by looking at Boko Haram in general, um, give our listeners an idea of the structure of the group, the makeup, um, some of the pertinent issues surrounding Boko Haram. Great. Okay. So to begin with, Boko Haram is a Salafist jihadi organization, uh, and that means that it has a very strict interpretation of Islam that decries sort of the corruption of the religion and of the Quranic text through the incorporation of different traditions. Um, so it is sort of a, an extremist, fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. Uh, and this group began in 2002 uh, when Muhammad Yusuf sort of broke away from a, a larger political Islam movement and founded his own church, uh, church, his own uh, religious institution um, on the outskirts of a major city in Borno State. And from 2002 to 2009, compared to the levels of violence that we've seen today, Boko Haram was a relatively nonviolent movement. It was sort of advocating for their specific interpretation of Islamic texts, uh, which said that uh, true Muslims couldn't really work with the Nigerian government or with local government officials um, because it was a secular government and it wasn't part of um, uh, a valid chronic interpretation. Um, and they would engage in, in sort of assassinations of local emirs, local politicians, mostly those who disagreed with their strict interpretation of uh, politics and education. So Boko Haram got its name um, from the word Boko, which means sort of book or Western education, um, and Hausa and Haram, which is uh, forbidden or deceitful um, in Arabic. And so they were also discussing how true Muslims couldn't study certain topics because it went against what was taught in the Quran. Um, kind of most interestingly, things like geography were banned because of their um, conflicts with the Quran under uh, Muhammad Yusuf's interpretation. But by 2009, they'd caused enough sort of unrest and instability in northeastern Nigeria that the federal government launched an offensive against them. 
And during this offensive, they killed an estimated 700 people, both militants and civilians. Uh, And while they were doing this, the Nigerian security forces engaged in a number of human rights abuses, um, which further marginalized and alienated citizens and residents of northeastern Nigeria, which is an already politically marginalized and uh, economically underdeveloped region of the country. Uh, And they also killed Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram. So after this 2009 offensive, there's sort of a lull in activity. But by 2012, 2011, 2012, Boko Haram had regrouped under its current leader, Abu Bakr Shakal. And that's when this sort of violent image of Boko Haram that we come to understand it as having today took off. Um, the rhetoric of the group, the tactics of the group, the targets of the group shifted from being very local to engaging with national level issues. And Abu Bakr Shakao has time and time again sort of addressed the Nigerian government as an enemy and as a persecutor of Boko Haram. Um, the levels of violence that Boko Haram was able to achieve through gunmen, bombings, um, in this, this time period from 2010 to uh, 2011 to 2013, uh, were so destabilizing that President Goodluck Jonathan uh, instituted a state of emergency in northeastern Nigeria in May of 2013. Um, and since that state of emergency, which coincided with the deployment of additional troops to cities in northeastern Nigeria, we've seen this violence displaced from urban centers into the, the rural areas. And now, um, you know, very famously, a few weeks ago, Boko Haram overran Baga um, and communities along like Chad. But that's sort of just the most recent iteration in a, a process of villagization and territorialization that Boko Haram has been engaged in since the declaration of emergency. So we've seen that the federal government's actions have not only served to accelerate the insurgency in 2009, but now also to displace the violence uh, from the urban areas into the rural areas, which has um, also coincided with another acceleration in the lethality of this insurgency. So that's sort of your, your Boko Haram history in a broad strokes vision. And that's great because it really filled in listeners that might not know that much about this group and the history behind it. So I thank you for that. Um, One of my questions as you were speaking that sort of popped into my mind was you were speaking about Boko Haram pre-2009 and then this change that took place. And then with the leader Abu Bakr Shakao, that Boko Haram became much more violent. Do you think Shakao had any hand in this, or is this more of a development of the group as a whole, um, reflecting the issues that are taking place in the country itself? So that's a great question. And that's being brought up in a lot of sort of the Nigeria watchers circles and the uh, counterterrorism circles. So there are some reports that um, Shakao and Yusuf had actually had quarrels while Yusuf was still alive concerning uh, the group's activities and that Shakao was a hardliner who wanted uh, to be much more stringent and have a much more aggressive policy. So there are those that attribute Boko Haram's uh, current lethality to Abu Bakr Shakao's preferences, to his ideology, to his leadership. Um, and it's an interesting take that there's not really... Uh, 
a sufficient number of interviews with Abu Bakr Shakao or enough information uh, about his discussions with Yusuf to say definitively. What I, I believe is certainly an accelerating factor in the, the lethality of the Boko Haram insurgency is the spread of weapons following the fall of Gaddafi. So in this regrouping period, essentially from 2009 to 2011, um, you had sort of the looting and the, the of Gaddafi's armory and the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion now about what are the ramifications of his fall. Um, and we've seen trans-Sahelian trade routes fairly flooded with weapons from his arsenal uh, since 2011. And if you look at the reports of Boko Haram's attacks since that time, they've gotten much more sophisticated weaponry. So the sort of knowledge um, and weaponry coming out of Libya since the fall of Gaddafi, I think has served to uh, accelerate uh, the Boko Haram insurgency by allowing them to engage in much more sophisticated attacks um, and, and simply just increasing the number of, of weapons available, allowing the the group to grow and metastasize. Very interesting. So sticking on Chacao, when anyone Googles his name, especially if you start looking through the different um, hits that you get, you get a lot of articles that pop up about Chacao actually being dead, that the military, uh, Nigerian military, should I say, claims that they killed him. So I was wondering, how do you think we should take these claims? Do you think they're valid? Do you think it's just a promotion by the Nigerian military to kill this nemesis of theirs. Um, and, and technically he seems to have appeared and I'll say that in parentheses, if, if, you know, he is in fact deceased, but he seems to have appeared in recent videos, which are post the announcement of his death. So what are your thoughts on this, uh, mystery? Should I say, um, I, I, take most announcements from the Nigerian military with a grain of salt. Um, earlier this year, they announced a so-called ceasefire with Boko Haram that turned out to be um, false, um, uh, or it fell through if it ever was in place. Um, so given the fact that you have a country on the verge of a, a major presidential election um, and uh, a country that's sort of struggling to assert the legitimacy of its security sector. Um, I think that the announcement of Abu Bakr Shikau's death uh, was incorrect, and it was perhaps a PR move for the Nigerian military. Um, interestingly, the announcement of the ceasefire that ended up never coming to fruition or perhaps never existing in the first place came right as President Goodluck Jonathan was sort of getting into the swing of his re-election bid. So I, I do think it's important to note that the Nigerian military is not an apolitical force. Um, and this election is um, Afrobarometer, uh, which does attitudinal data through uh, in African countries through surveys, just, I think it was today or yesterday, released um, a survey of Nigerians relating to the election and said that this is one of the closest, probably the closest election 
in Nigeria since the transition of democracy in 1999. There's just, it's an absolute toss up between uh, General Buhari and current President Goodluck Jonathan. So there's certainly an incentive um, for President Goodluck Jonathan to send an image uh, of having maintained security and restored stability to the Northeast of having responded appropriately to this insurgency. And just for our listeners, I'm I'm not sure if you alluded to it in what you just said, but the elections are coming up February 14th, if I'm correct. February 14th, that is it. So in just a couple of weeks. Um, First of all, forgive me if I mess up the names of these cities, because Nigeria is not my specialty (laughs) in the region of the world. But uh, on Sunday, which was January 25th, there was news that broke that um, Boko Haram launched a pretty massive attack on the Nigerian city of Midaguri. Let's see if I say that right. Um, <laughs> and also on a town outside of um, Midaguri, um, Monaguno. Uh, like I said, I hope I'm saying these names right, which is about 85 miles from Midaguri. And so I was wondering if we could look at that because there's a lot of strategic um, issues in these two regions, and it means a lot for Boko Haram. Um, apparently, the second town outside of the main city, Mangunu, uh, has still been under Boko Haram control since. Um, I was wondering if we could talk about this a little bit. Right. So, Boko Haram's. Uh, <laughs> this is the uh, the limitations of podcasts. I was about to to try and gesture to a map um, behind me. Uh, can't do that right now. <laughs> um, but Boko Haram's sort of been engaged in a process of encircling Maiduguri through its villagization, through its attempts at uh, gaining territory. So Maiduguri is the capital of Borno State, and Borno State has really borne the brunt of the Boko Haram insurgency. And so to capture Maiduguri would essentially mean that they have control over the entirety of Borno State. Um, just in terms of population, in terms of trade, in terms of the economy. So the latest offensive against Maiduguri um, is problematic on a number of levels. First of all, these attacks came when President Goodluck Jonathan was making his first visit to the Northeast in a number of years as part of his electoral campaign. Um, And the other issue, uh, as you alluded to earlier, is the strategic value of uh, not only the villages that they're controlling, but also their attempt to control Maiduguri. So the villages that they're controlling, in addition to giving them access to Maiduguri, or allowing them to control access flows of people, goods, to and from the city, uh, is very strategic. Um, but this is also a location that's near uh, a number of Nigeria's borders. And the Sahel, this sort of Western Africa, Northern African region, is characterized by porous borders. It's characterized by illicit trade networks and by smuggling. And so by gaining territory and control over the areas near Nigeria's borders, Boko Haram is also opening itself up to the arms trade, which would allow it to uh, increase the sophistication of their attacks. It's opening itself up to the human trafficking networks, which would allow them to 
uh, gain money by uh, selling kidnapped girls, kidnapped young men um, on these these markets. Uh, and it would give them access to the drug networks as well, which are very, very lucrative. Um, in addition, cigarette smuggling in that area is a source of um, funding, well, many analysts believe, for al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Um, Ansar al-Din has been involved in the which is a, a salafist jihadi insurgency in Mali, has uh, gotten significant resources and uh, power influence through its involvement with the, the drug and cigarette smuggling trade. So the latest offensive, uh, the latest sort of iteration of Boko Haram's villagization strategy and the strategy of taking territory not only gives it... Um, access to um, land, territory, Nigerian resources. Uh, it not only allows them to cut off resources to major urban centers like Maiduguri, but it also opens them up to international trade routes um, and potentially international connections. Thus far, it's been a domestic insurgency. It has been a Nigerian insurgency. But perhaps the expansion into these trade networks and into these sort of illicit trans-Sahelian networks would provide an opportunity for the insurgency to internationalize. Um, and that would be, it, it's a daunting prospect for the region, um, certainly, potentially for the world. Um, and that's why we've seen in recent weeks, cooperation between Chad and Cameroon and deliberations at the African Union as to what the region's response to Boko Haram should be. And as you just alluded to, you've seen a change in Boko Haram's strategy from going after more government targets, um, nation targets of the nation of Nigeria, to this idea of targeting villages. And so that's really interesting because it's a completely different strategy that the group is taking. And do you think the main focus is this idea of, of course, number one, gaining more ter territory? Of course, they're undermining the, the Nigerian state as well in the process. But as you just spoke of, you have these access to various trade routes depending on the region that they have under their control. But do you think that this is one of the main purposes or are there more underlying um, motivations behind it? You know, <clears throat> it's tough to say. Um, it's it's very difficult to read intentions into an organization like Boko Haram, into insurgencies. I will say that this process of villagization and territorialization only came about after the declaration of emergency in May of 2013 uh, and the deployment of additional Nigerian forces to counter Boko Haram in the cities. So I don't think that there's anything really endogenous or inherent to Boko Haram that made it seek out these um, trans-Sahelian trade networks if they are indeed involved with them. I think it's really just a response to the resources and locations available to them. If you have a strong security presence in the cities, fleeing to villages, to rural areas, and adapting your strategy is sort of the logical response. Um, so there have been a number of people who have interpreted Boko Haram as part of a, a global jihadist network and, and tried to 
argue that it has connections to Al-Qaeda and that's why it's, you know, engaging in this villagization process or it's got connections to ISIL um, and that's why it's declared a caliphate. Uh, and I don't think that that's the case. I think that Boko Haram doesn't necessarily have a static objective. Um, and so you've seen its tactics, its targets, um, and its objectives sort of shift given the resources and responses available to it uh, as an insurgency. Going back to the various um, attacks that Boko Haram has done recently, around the same time as the Paris attacks, news broke of this horrible massacre, which you also mentioned earlier in the talk in Baga. And I was wondering if we could look at this tragic event more closely. And it's actually quite timely because as Hillary and I were talking about before we started recording today, a video was released by the group. And it's an interview with um, Abu Musab al-Banawi um, referring to these attacks. And some of the comments he makes are quite interesting um, as to their reasoning and so forth. So why don't we look at generally the basic um, the basic happenings of these attacks in um, Baga first. And then we can go into this really interesting um, insight into this video that was released today. Right. So there was a lot of discussion about um, the Baga attack because um, Amnesty International, uh, I believe, published sort of this um, uh, satellite imagery of the number of homes that were destroyed, the number of, of businesses that were destroyed, imagery of really a town that had been burnt to the ground. And accompanying these news reports was a figure. 2,000 people were killed in this raid. Um, and the figure was later recanted. Uh, and I, I do want to note that because it it's frustrating to deal uh, with an insurgency that's either ignored or sensationalized. Um, but sort of the best estimates um, now suggest that the death figures were significantly lower than 2,000 though significantly higher than the 150 reported by the Nigerian military. So likely about 600 people, anywhere from 300 to 600 people, were killed in this raid. Um, so that's just one aspect of it that I would like to clarify. Um, at the Nigeria Social Violence Project at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, where I work with Dr. Peter Lewis, the head of the Africa Department, and... Um, Nate Allen, a PhD candidate in the African Studies Department here, the figures that we're coming up with have the insurgency um, coming in at a, a death toll of about 15,000 in the past five years, which is the most significant insurgency that Nigeria has dealt with since the transition to democracy in 1999. Um, and so sort of the figure thrown about of, of 2,000 people killed in one raid or one-seventh of the violence um, in the past five years taking place in one village was a little bit sensational, unbelievable. Um, and I, it, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. So um, thank you for the opportunity to, to sort of clarify the scope of the insurgency, not to 
to underplay the brutality and lethality of the group, but just to recognize that accurate reporting is a necessity in these sorts of conflicts and that sensationalizing the conflict certainly does not do anything to solve it. Um, Very much so. Right. So I'm sorry, what else did you want to talk about about that guy? I completely sidetracked myself and forgot the uh, the nuances of your question. No, but I mean, I think that's really important because if you once again, Google Baga, you will get these figures and you sit there and your mouth drops thinking, wow, 2000 people died and we're just hearing about this now and not a lot of coverage. And so um, the figures that you're presenting completely changed the conflict in Baga, um, the attack on Baga. But on the other hand, it still doesn't make it any better, but it, it puts it in a different perspective so to speak <laughs> right well and this also this was not the first time that Boko Haram had launched an attack against Baga so uh you know a lot of the coverage of it acted as if this was sort of a, a, a new territory that they had expanded to and certainly their ability to overrun Baga in their their second attempt at doing so is a significant development but this is an area that's now been under siege for coming up on, on two years, really, since the, the declaration of the state of emergency and the the ruralization, the villagization of the Boko Haram insurgency. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of things going on in the world. Boko Haram, northern Nigeria, don't always get the press coverage that uh, I and other Nigeria watchers think that it should deserve. But um, it, was, it was a little bit frustrating to see the insurgency... Um, thrown into the spotlight with so many uh, factual oversights or uh, sensationalizations, uh, sensationalized numbers. So considering this video that was um, released, at least the video um, I saw it this morning um, with Abu Musab al-Banawi, um, and he referred to the Baga attacks, and it was very interesting the wording he used the reasonings he used it was very reserved watching this man and and it was almost um very conservative when he spoke of the attacks it was very much one of these um i mean i think he even referred to we only fight those who fight us and it was very just taking a seat back from the actual violence of the act to how he was describing it and he made references to wanting control of Lake Chad and removing the military presence in that region. So I was wondering if we could look at this video a little bit, because I know you've watched it as well. Right. That's uh, it's actually how I kicked off my morning. What a way to start a Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> we did the same thing. So <laughs> It's great. Um, but it's, it's really, it's a wonderful propaganda video, because if you watch it, you wouldn't think that it's a, a bloody insurgency, you would know nothing of the brutality that they're inflicting upon the populations that they've overrun. He's Boko Haram in this video, I think, is making a very concerted effort to come across as not only reasonable, but also a defender of Muslim interests in Nigeria. And so, you know, the government is portrayed as secular as a persecutor of Nigerians, not just of the insurgency. Um, and, uh, you know, as you said earlier, he tells not only, uh, you know, the assumed audience of 
Nigerians, we only fight those who fight us, but he also gave a specific message to Chad and Cameron. Yes, saying, he did. He did. Yeah. That was very ballsy. I mean, excuse my language, but you no. sat there and you're like, oh, wow, he's going there. <laughs> he, just, he just is. And what's great, he just referred to the country by name. Um, not the leaders, not the populations, not cities, just Chad and Cameron. Um, we only fight those who fight us, so don't fight us. Um, and he even, you know, tried to... I, I, suppose cover his basis when he said don't believe what you hear about us in the media uh only believe it if it comes from us which as someone that's you know uh, spoken to canadian television about this and written about it um it's it's interesting um to to watch how they try and discredit media reports of their activities in an attempt to make themselves sort of the the vanguard of Muslims in Nigeria. So it's it's a fascinating video and it's it's absolutely a continuation of a rhetorical shift that we've seen in the insurgency where under Abubakar Shakao the group has focused less on defending necessarily their strict interpretation of Islam but focusing on the shortcomings um, an extrajudicial violence of the Nigerian state and discussing how the Nigerian state is illegitimate. And now in this video, um, it appears that they're trying to sort of assert their legitimacy um, as not only a provider of a specific and obviously in their view, correct interpretation of religion, but also as an alternative governing body so, you know, the, the Nigerian state is illegitimate. The rumors that you've heard about our brutality are made up. We only fight those who fight us, and we are the defenders of um, Islam in Nigeria. You know, cooperate with us uh, in the name of Allah, which is fascinating when you read the reports of how they've um, massacred populations in this uh, throughout the course of the insurgency, but certainly over the past five years in astounding numbers. It was very interesting because he made this reference, or actually it, um, it wasn't um, uh, Abu Musab al-Banawi who made the reference, it was the interviewer, and he asked him, this is not paraphrasing, but he alluded to what if someone comes to you wanting to repent, um, and, I, and he, I think he was referring to someone that was previously against Boko Haram, but now sort of sees the light and they want to repent and, you know, what will your response be to them? And it was very this relaxing idea of, oh, if he comes, you know, we'll we'll let him in with our brothers and then he can tell his brothers how great we are. I mean, that was sort of my interpretation of it. And you kind of sit back and you think, okay, so whoever's watching this video, you know, maybe people with militant views, um, the general Nigerian, what, especially the general Nigerian, are they really going to sit here and sit back and knowing the violence that they've experienced already on the hands of, by the hands of this group, are they really going to sit back and look at this sort of passive interview and, and believe it? It was almost, for me, kind of watching it, you know, I'm definitely at times I can be a skeptic on, on certain things and you sit there and you think, is someone really going to buy this? And does, does, um, Abu Musab al-Banawi and the producers of this video, do they really believe that people are going to just <clears throat> really honestly take this video on as fact? 
Well, I think it's it's important to note, and Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have done a really wonderful job in, in trying to spread knowledge about this, but the Nigerian government has engaged in really unpalatable acts of extrajudicial violence against its own population in the attempt to root out the Boko Haram insurgency. So you have sort of the rise of these um, vigilante groups, the Civilian Joint Task Force, operating sometimes with the Nigerian government, sometimes on their own. Um, and they're, they're really sort of a symptom of the failures and, uh, yeah, I, I guess failures uh, of the, the Nigerian security sector. So I think perhaps the average Northern Nigerian if they've been persecuted by not only Boko Haram, but then by their own government, sees this, it, it might perhaps facilitate cooperation with the insurgency. Perhaps it won't bolster their recruitment numbers, but perhaps people will... Um, yeah, James Scott describes um, foot-dragging protest amongst peasant communities as undermining colonial projects. Um, and I think the video today might sort of prevent foot-dragging protest amongst northern Nigerian communities that might otherwise slow down the Boko Haram insurgency. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to say the group has increasingly relied upon kidnappings and conscription in order to bolster its numbers. And this may be a tactic of saying... Um, you know, your government has persecuted you, which in previous statements and flyers and pamphlets and other videos, um, the insurgency has really emphasized the extrajudicial violence and the illegality um, and the impunity of Nigerian soldiers and Nigerian police officers. So this video might be a way of saying, you know, not only is the Nigerian government acting in a predatory manner towards you, um, but you can also turn to us. We will be um, a provider of forgiveness. We will be a provider of legitimacy. Um, and, you know, no hard feelings if you disagreed with us before. Um, so it's it's an interesting development. And I'll be curious to see um, what sorts of effects it might have on recruitment patterns. Um, but it's it's difficult to say what their reasoning is behind this at present. And sort of to bring the conversation to a close, I was wondering if we could look at the impact of Boko Haram on the neighboring states. Uh, what has the toll been for them, if any? Right. So Boko Haram has created a massive, um, within Nigeria, uh, internally displaced population. Um, and certainly there are going to be refugee flows into um Cameroon, uh, really all throughout the Sahel um, from the Boko Haram insurgency. This is already a region that's characterized by high numbers of refugees um, between countries and internally displaced people within countries. And that's absolutely a burden on these states. And it's created sort of an arc of instability in the region. Refugees are very difficult 
for states to provide for. Even the most capable, richest, robust of states have difficulties dealing with refugee populations. Um, and the states in Western Africa, Central Africa, throughout the Sahel can really hardly be characterized as uh, wealthy, robust, legitimate states. So thus far, Boko Haram has an been characterized by it has engaged in a handful of international attacks but it has not been characterized by an international focus however that's not to say that the group won't evolve again to focus on more internationalized targets and i think the video released today in which chad and cameroon were specifically identified by the spokesman um hint at the possibility for internationalized attacks. Um, the AU has shown um, sort of remarkable understanding of the threat that this poses to the region and is considering a regionalized response, but sort of the risk that you run with a regionalized response to this thus far domestic insurgency is prompting it towards internationalization or regionalization through a bungled effort. So there's nothing inherent to Boko Haram that would drive it to attack international or regional targets. Um, and so regional or international efforts to combat Boko Haram need to be undertaken very carefully. Uh, I think Equally important as a regionalized or international response would be international and regional support for the Nigerian government as it undergoes security sector reform. So to have a, a military that's better trained, um, not only in counter insurgency and counterterrorism tactics, but also in respecting the rule of law and upholding human rights during these offensives. So in conclusion, we have these elections coming up uh, in February 14th. It's an important time, as you spoke of at the starting of the talk. I mean, do you think that really true and fair elections can take place in such an environment? Is the stability, is there enough stability in the region? Or is this going to be a wild and woolly election, if we're going to put it in fun terms? It's, um, it's going to be a challenging election that is certain. Um, you have a, a massive number. I've heard numbers as high as a, a million or so internally displaced people in Nigeria. So getting their permanent um, resident voter registration cards to them is a logistical hurdle. Um, that's in addition to the difficulties of conducting free, fair, and safe elections in northeastern Nigeria um, in terms of just public safety, Boko Haram could absolutely destabilize these elections. Um, and if you look at sort of the, the nuanced and boring and at times confusing electoral laws in Nigeria for the presidential election, there have been some questions about whether or not, um, because you have to have a certain percentage of votes um, from different regions across the country in order to be legitimately elected to the office of the presidency. Some are calling into question whether or not uh, the elections will be legitimate, given that it's so uncertain whether or not 
communities in northeastern Nigeria will be able to vote um, in terms of receiving um, voter registration cards, uh, all the, the bureaucratic paperwork, and then in terms of, of public safety. So February 14th in Nigeria is going to be um, a hectic, challenging day. Um, and I'm excited that I'll be there to witness it, but I'm concerned about the aftermath of the election um, and, and sort of what I, I believe will be almost inevitable debate over the outcomes. Uh, as we were discussing before we started recording, Afrobarometer just released sort of a survey concerning um, how Nigerians feel about the, the coming elections and trying to predict whether or not uh, General Buhari will unseat President Goodluck Jonathan. And Afrobarometer is saying that this is going to be the, the closest election in the Nigerian Fourth Republic. So we'll see. Yeah, it should be very interesting. And I'm, I know a lot of our listeners as well as myself, and, and you're going to be there in person, um, but we'll be watching it from here and, and from our homes in the different countries. And I want to wish you safe travels and a safe trip to Nigeria. Um, hopefully it'll be a exciting and very um, knowledgeable experience being there and witnessing this firsthand. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge on this topic. And I hope to talk to you when you get back as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'd encourage anyone that's interested to reach out to us at the Nigeria Social Violence Project at Johns Hopkins SICE. Um, and hopefully I'll come back after the elections and we can maybe do a group session on a the podcast about the results of the election and the implications for Nigeria's future. That sounds fantastic. So until that time, have a very good trip and a good um, safe travels as well. Thank you. Have a great day.